Hi, all. Welcome back to another episode of Clinical Appraisal, a show dedicated to exploring measurement and methodology issues in nursing science and practice. I'm your host, Ian Lane, a DNP student in acute care at the UMass Medical School Graduate School of Nursing and a transfer student from a PhD program in neuroscience and statistics. I say that just to give some context as to why I speak on the things I do and how my interests have sort of been derived from past experience and what gives me at least a modicum of expertise to be able to speak on some of the things that I speak on. As always, nothing I say constitutes medical advice. This is education, pure and simple. And my opinions are my own. These are not representative of those of my employer or affiliates or the University of Massachusetts. Today, I want to talk a little bit about, oh, and if you're interested, visit my website at about.me slash Ian Lane and email me for any questions, comments, or concerns at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. So today, I want to talk a little bit about my views on nursing as implementation and implementation research or implementation science as an integral arm of nursing research and how it might actually be in part a sort of savior, if you will, of uh, where we are at in terms of nursing science and how to use more of the DNP scholarly projects and the doctors of nursing practice level providers of care in general in terms of translating clinical research more effectively. That is not to say anything derogatory about the current system. It's just to say that uh, if we want to continue to optimize it, I think this is one place that we ought to look. So many people have never heard of implementation science. It seems to be on some level intuitive enough to grasp just by virtue of the language, right? Implementation would seem to make some sense. It seems to be on its face, the process of actually carrying out some thing or other in some context, applying it, the you know, ap- applying some hypothetical solution to some hypothetical problem, right? And then the science piece or the research piece is you know intuitive as well. It's the process of conducting the science of that thing that you are implementing. Um, all of that is sort of an overly simplified, very exaggerated way to sort of describe this. But but all I'm trying to do is just to give a sense of the way that it sounds like it would be is close enough to what it actually is that it's a starting point. But for those who are actually interested, implementation research is a relatively new strain of scientific research that has sort of blossomed out of the public health literature, I believe. Um, and I'm not a historian of science, so this is not my forte per se, but from my my exploration in and implementi- implementation science research center in a psychiatry department, which is the work that I did prior to graduate school and um, still do as well, it essentially has led me to this understanding that the field of public health realized some years ago that they were developing these interesting, possibly population health transforming interventions, but they were not really making it into the public consciousness. They were not making it into clinics or public health um, offices. They weren't making it rather into the community. They were, you know, articles that would sit on dusty shelves or now in, uh, you know, they would sit around on the internet somewhere in the ether and they wouldn't really go anyplace, any, any place impactful, right? And anybody who's been involved in research knows this all too well. The number of citations that you'll get on a research article that you are first author on, for example, I mean, the average number of citations, I think, is zero. (laughs) 
Um, it depends on the field, right? Um, but I think in general across fields, the average is like a couple citations, maybe if you're lucky. And now there are some people who get all the citations. So this is going to follow something like an exponential power law where just like in any other productive domain, uh, productivity is not evenly distributed across different researchers. So some researchers are going to get, you know, many, many, many are going to get zero. And then some are going to get all of them. <laughs> so just like 1% of the American public holds 99% of the wealth, 1% of the researchers are going to hold 99% of the citations at a certain point, um, just by, by virtue of the logical extension of this line of thinking mathematically. And that's true. And we all know, well, we know of those people, or in our, some cases, we know those people. Same thing with like grant getting. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm getting off the point. The point isn't that so much. The point is that um, often the citation piece here is just to reflect the fact that most often these things sit around and are not touched. They're not used. And the part of the issue I think the public health field was realizing is that part of the reason it sits around is because there are often efficacy studies or preliminary effectiveness reports that are sort of trying to observe the problem or maybe build an intervention that will later hypothetically be leveraged in the future. And for those of you who are aware of the gap, the translational gap between research and practice, you, know, you will know oftentimes there's about a 10-year gap between the time where a research project, even a good one, is demonstrating something in the literature that appears to be useful and the time that it's actually taken up by clinicians or you know, in the community, whatever that community is. So by its stakeholders, let's say. Now, a part of this is clearly a function of clinicians and other stakeholders not having sufficient access to research and researchers, um, not having access for a variety of reasons. It could be paywall reasons. It could be the ivory tower and all its uh, all the things that come with that. But there are other, you know, I mean, for one, one big reason, in my opinion, um, clinicians are not often taught much about research or how it's conducted or why it matters. And, you know, a lot of clinicians are, they're smart enough to figure that stuff out on their own, but without some kind of formal or formalized training to some degree, it's very hard to get that. And, you know, part of the issue, of course, is that let's just take one example uh, a four-year undergraduate bachelor's of science in nursing class, uh, uh, yeah, um, degree program, rather, or a medical school program. There's so much information packed in these that they must, I mean, they don't, there's not a lot of room for, there's not a lot of wiggle room for additional pieces. Now, in medical school, students have the opportunity to take additional classes and combine with a master's of public health, which allows them to do a little bit more of that. They have to take a biostatistics class, an epidemiology class, and you know, public policy or something like that, and maybe a few extra credits, and they can sit. Uh, well, they don't sit for an exam per se, but they can take that MPH as well as their MD. And there's a variety of other little ways that could be tweaked to help sort of close that gap a little bit. But on the whole... A lot of these programs, they don't have the room for this. And so this isn't, I'm not lobbing this as a criticism of clinicians per se, and I'm not actually really intending to criticize anybody so much as I'm trying to, to lay out an argument for why, you know, a, a piece of this problem falls on the practical side, on the side of the uh, pragmatists who are just trying to do their job in the community as stakeholders, Right. So let's just take one example. You have a researcher in biomedicine 
who is, say, a PhD in biomolecular sciences. I'm just making something up. Then suppose you have an MD physician in the clinic, and their work is overlapping. So the biomolecular scientist is interested in, let's say this is an internist, and the, the physician is an internist, and the biomolecular scientist is interested in the production of a higher quality insulin. This probably isn't a great analogy. Um, let's say they're a diabetologist in the, in the research setting, and they're trying to, to, they're trying to build a more effective treatment for type 1 diabetics. Let's say, just, just to pick something. <laughs> I, I'm reticent to say something simple because that's not simple in the least. But um, they have this, let's say they have a new protocol. Um, they've built a new pharmaceutical agent in the lab and they want to implement it. So they conduct an efficacy study. And they take, let's say, 35 patients, 40 patients, and they put them through this efficacy study. And um, I'm making this up as I go, so I, I apologize if this is hard to follow. Um, they do this 40-person efficacy study, and they show some positive result. And let's suppose, for the sake of argument, that it's actually a significant Result, and I don't mean statistically significant per se, but perhaps it is. Um, but suppose it is actually a pretty robust result. Now, um, somehow or other, it makes it across the desk of the internist in the community who has, you know, a panel of patients that they're treating that are type one diabetics, and somebody says to them, "Look, look, I've, you know, came across this paper, and." You know, it was only published a couple years ago. Let's say there's a little bit of a lag. Maybe it's not 10 years. Let's say it's two years. And um, the physician, the internist, says, okay, well, how do I know that these 40 patients actually mapped onto the, the patients that are actually in my panel? I've got about 400 type 1 diabetics. Who knows if they actually look like the patients they had in this sample? Okay, well, that's a reasonable... Um, that's a reasonable question to consider. But then they might also say, and yeah, you know what? I don't know if this would work here. I don't know if people would take this for whatever reason. I don't know if it would be acceptable to the patients that I'm seeing. Um, I don't know if, you know, suppose that there's a new route of administration, right? I'm, again, I'm just making this up. So this is just a complete thought experiment right now. Imagine that this biomolecular scientist that created this new pharmaceutical agent for type 1 diabetics, they're, they're requiring a new route of administration to properly deliver this just based on the pharmacokinetics and, um, and pharmacodynamics of this particular drug. Okay, So the physician says, well, based on this piece alone, I'm not convinced it can be done here. And then it doesn't get implemented. And then, you know, suppose that there's another effectiveness study that was done with a, a larger grant that's published three years later. So we're now we're five years down the road. Now there's a larger patient population, and it still seems to hold the effect, still seems to be significant. Well, that's great. Somebody comes back to this physician, same guy, right, years later. Um, so we're five years down the road, and he says, you know, I've heard about this drug. I've, I saw some data a while back about this. Um, it turns out, you know, the drug is still effective. But the question that he'd asked originally about the feasibility of actually implementing that at their location, for example, just one example, or whether the patients would actually be interested in and willing to take that particular agent in that form with that route of administration, all of those questions still stand. None of that was answered. So this person says, yeah, you know what? I'm still not sure. And then suppose that, you know, there have been, let's say, six other papers on the same drug after another five years. And now there's enough evidence to sort of piece together 
this supposition that, okay, it's probably worth trying. And then this physician starts to maybe begin to implement that protocol at his, his clinic. Um, now we're 10 years down the road. This is the sort of predicament that we are in right now. And what, and so I guess this is, when I say I'm not criticizing the clinicians, what I mean is I don't want you to misinterpret what I'm saying to mean that the physician didn't get on board quick enough. I don't think that at all. Actually, what I'm saying is almost quite the opposite. It's that there's also another input to this system, which is the researcher or the research methodology itself, right? So you can imagine a world in which the researcher says, you know, there's the question of efficacy, sure, but there's also the question of feasibility, right? There's also a question of acceptability. There's also a question of whether or not this is appropriate at this location with this patient population, et cetera, et cetera. There's all the abilities, acceptability, appropriateness, employability, feasibility, blah, 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 approachability. (laughs) There's all the abilities. Those are all independent or, you know, independent, albeit overlapping research questions that the researcher has a responsibility to help answer too. Now, some researchers would rebut this, and I've, I've known quite a few of them. They would say that the predominant, the, the uh, predominant responsibility that they have primarily is to demonstrate the effectiveness of the new medication. But to that, I would say, great, it's effective, and you've shown it, good for you. But now you can't actually change the lives of those people you're meant to, you know, whose health you've meant to improve with this new effective drug because the effectiveness of the drug is not the same thing as the effectiveness of the delivery of that drug. So this is a bit of a long-winded way to get around to saying that implementation research tries to blend the intervention Uh, effectiveness, efficacy model that I've sort of outlined roughly for you over the last few minutes with feasibility pilot studies and things that actually take into account the implementation on the ground, in the community, with the stakeholders, in the clinic, let's say. So there are individuals in the scientific community who now focus on what we call translational research or clinical and translational research. There's a center at the UMass Medical School where I work called CCTS. It's the Center for Clinical and Translational Sciences. It's where the IRB is actually uh, housed. And, you know, it's interesting because there is a unique set of expertise in this sort of department. There's a reason that it's funded in and of itself, along with our population and quantitative health sciences programs. They are not the same thing, but they're overlapping in a lot of ways. Translational research is a niche of its own for a reason. And that's because it's designed to close this gap. Now, we still need bench and lab researchers who are doing efficacy work only, I know that I I also know some individuals who would contest that. But we do need these people who are focused on the very fine-grained details of the development side. But we also need individuals who float in the middle between the two. And there was an NIH initiative to a while back to create something called the Physician Scientist some of you, especially in the, those in graduate school who have ever contemplated something like an, um, a medical school application, may have seen at some point that you can apply sometimes to medical school just for your MD or your DO, but sometimes you can also apply for a DO-MPH or an MD-MPH or a DO-PhD. There are fewer of those, but an MD-PhD. And you might ask, why the MD-PhD? Why apply to a dual doctorate program People make this joke if it's just collecting letters after your name. But realistically, you know, there's a good question there. It's like, why, why do you need both? And, um, you know, my personal goal is to 
get my DNP, finish my DNP, um, and then move into the PhD portion where I can take my scholarly project and move it into a dissertation. And, you know, I'll, I'll maybe do an episode on what I am interested in and why uh, at another point in time. But it's for precisely this, this reason that I actually think this is a space that's worth exploring further for myriad reasons. But um, so I, I would give answers to this question of like, why the MD PhD? Why the DNP PhD, which some schools are doing, like Johns Hopkins and Case Western? What, what's the point, right? The point is to float between these two worlds. And you could ask, why would someone need to do that when you have both people? Well, one of the individuals I'm going to interview on this podcast is an epidemiologist with a, a master's in epidemiology and is a PhD student in the Population and Quantitative Health Sciences program here at UMass. She's uh, working on a smoking cessation trial, a clinical trial. Well, it's a pilot study with myself and some other investigators in the psychiatry department in this mental health services world that I work in um, outside of school. (laughs) And she's a brilliant woman. Um, So she and I had this conversation the other day where she sort of was extolling the virtues of this combined program. And one of the things she said was, for example, you know, me getting my DNP and learning how to become a clinician on the ground, she said, you know, you're going to have this advantage of understanding the biology, understanding the physiology. She goes, for me, I can plug in the variables, do the math and get the computation and, you know, I might even get the right answer, but I can't necessarily give you the explanation as to what the pathophysiology means. That's one reason to do both. Because you can then you can have the understanding of the physiology and the pathophysiology, but you can also be able to understand, interpret, and conduct the science in such a way that you can plug in the variables and get the answer as well. And that's incredibly valuable on the clinical end in terms of being able to take others' research and apply it to your patient population, you know, assuming that that's a realistic thing to do, depending on the context. But the other thing is, from the research end, it improves the research questions because clinicians know what questions to ask, and then the researchers tend to go answer them. Now, but if these two are people, the question asker and the question answerer are the same person, you can envision a world in which that question may get answered um, maybe quicker, possibly, but certainly with more applicability to the clinical context in which they apply those research questions. And oftentimes, the translational researcher, MD, PhD, DNP, whatever they happen to be, are embedded in the clinical system, attempting to engage with that health system or with those patients. And often, the answers that are derived from those studies, they begin to take the form of, um, you know, this seemed to be effective, but doing this and this and this, whatever those thises are, these pieces, were actually very difficult to employ here with this patient population, and here's why. And suddenly, you get these clinician researchers or clinical investigators who are saying, listen, this is a great intervention, hypothetically, but on the ground, here are the three key places that we are noticing in these feasibility trials, as one example, these intervention implementation trials, where things start to fall apart. So the, the point of this episode isn't to say that, you know, we need the DNP PhD or that DNP should be doing more. Well, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but the point isn't to extol the virtues of the clinician researcher um, because I'm not interested in just patting myself on the back here. I'm actually interested in relating this back to some problems that I know my listeners have faced before because 
I am fairly certain they have because I have had this conversation with many, many, many tens of nurses and nurse practitioners. And I mean, some clinicians, I mean, some researchers as well, but mostly clinicians on the ground. There seems to be a divide between academia and clinical practice. And it seems to some people to be an almost impenetrable force that divides the two in such a way that people claim, and I think sometimes in an overly simplistic way, that those in academia up in the ivory tower don't understand what's actually happening on the ground. And then people on the ground, you know, people in academia perceive them as not giving enough credence to academics for one reason or another. And, and it's that gap as well that I want to address. Now, that's a similar gap, I think, between the world of clinical practice and clinical research. And that's the gap that implementation science can kind of come in and help to address. Uh, but I think that the same sort of gap exists between academics in nursing and clinicians on the ground who are nurses or nurse practitioners. So I've asked this question of many people before. The question being, how do you see the relevance of the academic work that you did in school to your clinical practice? And I often get people who, I mean, every so often somebody will say to me, I feel like it gave me a framework for what I'm doing. Um, But almost invariably, I get this answer that sort of says something akin to, I feel like most of what I learned in school did not help to prepare me for what I do now. Now, before we get too far down this rabbit hole, I want to make something very clear. It is certainly possible that what the education you're getting is doing is not training you for the job that you're going to have, partly because there's too many potential avenues for you to go that such that your job might not look anything like your education just by virtue of the fact that you are in a very niche area of practice, that is. But it is, it is certainly conceivable that the training you're getting in your educational program is intended to lay the foundation for what you do later. So if, for example, you can't conduct a health assessment properly, how are you going to be able to go into the clinic anywhere and then uh, be a proper advocate for your patient's condition with their physicians, supposing you're a bedside nurse? Um, If you can't do the health assessment properly, then that patient's going to suffer because you're the one that's by the bedside and the provider is not the one that's right there keeping a close eye, hypothetically, on that patient. And a lot of nurses are phenomenal at this. And part of the reason why nurses are so good at this is because they get that training in their educational programs. But a lot of people say things like, you know, all the theory and all the research I did, none of that applies. Well, we can debate about how it might have applied or might not have applied, and that's not really the point I want to make. The point I want to make is that there might be an argument for academics to maybe speak more directly and more bluntly with clinical nurses on the ground, on the front lines, about what they need and what they feel that they did not get, right? And I think that there's some of this going on. Um, There's certainly a lot of research on, you know, nurses' perceptions of X, Y, or Z, student nurses' perceptions of training in X, Y, or Z. There are nurse educators who are involved in educational research in this area, and this is their sole focus. So I think there are probably individuals who are already doing the kind of work that I'm, I'm mentioning. So if they are out there listening and you're doing this, first of all, I would love to speak with you sometime on the podcast. But second of all, this isn't meant to step on your toes and it's not meant to 
imply that you're not doing this good work. Um, what I intend to say here is just simply that I think there's a gap that needs to be addressed. And asking nurses from an implementation standpoint, what would have, what kind of added pieces to their education would have helped prepare them for implementing in the job the orders that they get. So let me backtrack for a moment and say, just to provide a little additional context, um, my partner is a registered nurse, a bedside nurse in a medical surgical ward of a pediatric hospital and works mostly in GI and renal. And uh, the floor, it also happens to be their COVID floor because uh, some of the other floors are, you know, the hemoc floor and places where patients are at, at particular, particularly high risk if they were to be exposed to uh, SARS-CoV-2. So they're trying to protect those patients and also, you know, provide a, a special wing, as it were, for, um, for persons under investigation or suspected COVID patients or COVID-positive pa- persons um, in this child, in this pediatric hospital. Um, the reason I say this is because, you know, he'll, he's probably got about eight months on the job after graduating from his BSN program. And, you know, he's a great nurse. I mean, obviously biased because he's my husband, but he's a fabulous nurse. He loves what he does, but he comes home and every so often he'll have a stressful day and he'll say, you know, I feel like my training didn't prepare me as well as I would hope. And I'll inquire as to why that might be and just ask a few additional probing type questions. And, you know, I always sort of implant a little of my own bias, which is to say that, you know, if you didn't have that education, you wouldn't be so good with patients and their families. You wouldn't have such a good bedside manner. You wouldn't have such good assessment skills, for example. You wouldn't understand the pharmacology and patho enough to be able to describe to patients what's happening, why they're getting what they're getting, et cetera, et cetera. And he said something very interesting to me in response to that, which was, yes, that's true, but that's only, I know he threw out some number that's only 5% or 10% of my job. And regardless of what precise percent of his job it actually is, the fact is that he says that, you know, 90% or 95% of his job is implementation. And as an implementation researcher, my ears peaked and I was like, well, what do you, what do you mean by that exactly? And he explained that implementing nursing interventions or implementing medical interventions, for that matter, as a nurse, which is often the case, is a unique. Um, it's a unique aspect of the job that actually encompasses, in his words, ninety percent of the job, and that's what was never taught to him in his program. So, that was very interesting because I've heard that before, and I usually hear it, and I think you'll you'll probably know this from your own experience, I've heard people say, you don't learn to be a nurse in nursing school. That's not where you learn. You learn on the job after. But that seems to, well, that, that would be concerning, right? I mean, the, but I've also heard it from physicians. Medical school is not where I learned to be a doctor. It was in residency. It's usually one of the things that's levied against nurse practitioners when they say, NPs don't have enough hours. I should be very careful to make sure I say, too, this is not the majority of physicians. Most physicians actually have very amicable relationships with their nurse practitioner team members. But there are those who say, I've had you know 40,000 hours of training, you know 20,000 in my program, 40,000 in fellowship. I've had X number of hours, blah, blah, blah. And they'll say, um, it's not comparable how many hours you get because I didn't learn to be a doctor in medical school. I learned to be a doctor in residency or, and res, re, residency or and fellowship. And I think that it, there's a similar argument 
with nurses on the ground. They'll say, you know, yeah, I learned X and Y from my program, but I really learned how to be a nurse when I got on the floor. But I think that what is happening here, this might be different for physicians. I don't intend to speak from that vantage point at all. Um, I was just using that as an uh, analogous example. But speaking of nursing only, you know, I think that it's this implementation piece that my husband was speaking about. And, you know, my friends who are nurses or nurse practitioners will say this a similar kind of thing. It might be different for those of us who are NPs or in NP school like myself. Um, but, you know, for the nurses, I've heard many, many people say the exact same thing, almost verbatim. Nursing school never prepared me to work on the ward, to be in the hospital, to be on the floor, to actually treat patients. And I don't think, when I, when I probe in this way, I usually get the response of, well, no, no, yeah, it taught me how to assess the patient. Or, yes, I learned about the pharmacology. I learned about the microbiology. That stuff I learned from school. That, that's critical. And I've always made this argument in return as a re- rebuttal. Those are critical pieces. If you didn't have that, how could you possibly expect to be a competent clinician coming in as an entry-level person on the ward? You wouldn't be entry-level. You'd be some dangerous place well before that with this Dunning-Kruger effect happening in the background. You'd be a danger to patients. Your educational program makes you safe to actually plop onto the floor and work with patients. And I do believe that that's true. I also believe that as many people will denounce their nursing theory and the nursing research, that the very minor amount of research uh, practice you get in school, which is not enough, um, I recognize my bias since I'm a researcher as well, Um, but, you know, the, the minimal amount of research training they get actually does help them to stay abreast of the little bit of research that they're able to follow because they're so busy. Um, and, you know, the theory gives them, in my estimation, something like a framework by which to move from that research to practice and bring their knowledge to patient care. But all that aside... As much as I would rebut those things with those types of arguments, and I do believe those things, there is this question of how much implementation, or rather, how much of a struggle with the implementation end does there need to be when you first get on the job? Because maybe there's a way to add in additional training hours doing mostly implementation work. Um, I mean, and I want to say as well, this is sort of, I'm thinking out loud in this way. So I think that's an important piece to at least consider. The other piece, which is actually my primary reason for laying the groundwork as I did for the last few minutes here on this point, which is the point of, a majority of what a nurse does is implementation. It's implementing nursing interventions and it's implementing medical interventions. Implementation, the actual employing of different strategies to improve the health and well-being of these patients and or their families or the community, these interventions, they have this enormous implementation aspect, which might be the vast majority of what's happening. And, you know, my husband and my friends who are at the bedside, who that, you know, their, their sole focus is bedside nursing, and they're not interested in, or specifically looking at becoming an NP, for example, and becoming a provider. At the bedside, they, the way that they've described it to me is that implementation is the job. Now, it might not be the whole job, I would argue it's not the whole job and it might not be 90%, but maybe it's 75%, maybe it's 70, maybe it's 80. But it is it seems to be a majority. It seems to take up a majority of the proportion of that pie as it were. 
when it comes to clinical research, coming back around to the research question end, if we, knowing that nursing is a, is a highly, knowing that nursing as a field, as a discipline, is implementation, right? If we don't leverage implementation research in nursing science, how are we going to address this disparity that exists between clinical nurses on the ground and nurse researchers in academia? So just think about that for a while, those of you who are interested in research. And, and I implore you to look up the journal nurse, the, the journal inter, wow, excuse me, the journal implementation science. There's also a new journal that um, a friend and colleague of mine, uh, one of her mentors, started called Implementation Research and Practice, which is another new journal. I would recommend people look into that. The, this is a growing area with a lot of really interesting work that's being done, um, a lot of new methodologies that are being developed, and a lot of really cool studies that are coming out of this field that have wide applicability to the field of nursing. Not It's, you know, began maybe in public health, but it's moved very much so into mental health services and behavioral health. And so it's very, very applicable to the uh, psychiatric nurses that are out there listening. But there's no reason to limit it to mental and behavioral health and community and public health. The strategies and the methodologies employed could be used across nursing science to improve the feasibility, acceptability, and appropriateness of nursing and medical interventions delivered by nurses or nurse practitioners. So the first big argument that I suppose I am making here is to put forward this, I would say, injunction that the field of nursing science ought to consider an integral component of the addition of implementation research methodologies. That's the first piece. The second piece is coming, coming back, I think, to this point that I was sort of making, alluding to about the necessity of the clinical investigator who sort of floats between the two worlds of practice and research. I think that the DNP ought to be conceived of in precisely this way. Now, it's interesting because back when I had my interview for the DNP program at UMass, the individuals who interviewed me, and they were wonderful, um, they had asked some really interesting questions, and we had a chance to talk a little bit about uh, many different things. And one of the things that one of the uh, interviewers had mentioned was that you know most people don't understand what the doctor of nursing practice is. Because there was always this PR push to make it seem like it is equivalent to an MD or a DDS or a DPT or whatever the case is. And the reason it's not is, because, is not because it's not, um, it's not a legitimate doctoral degree or anything like that. That's not true at all. What is true, though, is that the license for the APRN or the CRNP, depending on the state you're in, is at the master's level, and the board certification is currently at the master's level, despite what we would like to see happen as a field. And the master's level clinicians do a phenomenal job that is arguably comparable to their physician colleagues in every way, excluding patient satisfaction, which is usually higher. So the point is not to say that there's something lesser about the master's at all. The point is to say that the doctoral degree represents something different. Now, there are clearly multiple avenues for a doctoral degree in nursing. There, and historically, it's been sort of a windy road. So there was at one time the, the nursing doctorate, the ND. And for those of you who are astute uh, students of various healthcare doctorates, you'll notice that the ND now represents naturopathic doctor, which is a, uh, a, it's not copyrighted. What's the technical, 
like a registered trademark, right? That's trademarked to naturopathic physicians such as they are. And and so now, you know, that's fallen uh, to the wayside decades ago. And then there was the, um, there were a lot of nurses who became doctoral level individuals from the standpoint of education. And so there's an EDD, which is a well-respected doctoral degree in education. And, you know, different from the PhD, the EDD was interested in educational outcomes and modifying curricula and also I mean I am not an expert in <laughs> in any of that stuff that's not my area but um but I I know that it existed and that nurses have historically taken advantage of that avenue which has served I think pretty well um the field of nursing now that there has always also been uh the PhD I don't know, when I say always, I don't mean that it's always existed. But for many decades, that's been an, op- an option for nurses who are interested in a doctoral terminal degree in nursing. And the PhD, as most people know, is essentially a method of asking and answering your own research questions to develop original knowledge for the field. It's also often been used, as has the EDD, for theoretical uh, I hesitate to say research per se, but in a way you could consider it research, but sort of a theoretical construct building for the field of nursing. So it's been very focused on original knowledge generation. Um, there was also a DNS or DNSC doctor of nursing science that emerged some decades ago, which has also fallen to the wayside, I believe, especially in the advent of the DNP, which now stands for Doctor of Nursing Practice. So as you can see, there have been a wide array of potential terminal degree options. And of course, you know, there are nurses who've gone on to medical school and there are nurses who've gone on to other PhDs in the biomedical sciences. And so there's, you know, the paths are numerous, right? But now there are two predominant arms for a terminal doctoral degree in the United States in the nursing profession. They are the DNP and the PhD. And the way that this is framed, I think many times by the public incorrectly, is that the DNP is the nursing equivalent of an MD. That is what makes MDs upset, right? Because they're like, well, no, 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 that's not fair. We did X, Y, and Z for our license and our doctoral degree, you did, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And the, the issue with that is it's like comparing apples and oranges because it's not the same. The DNP is not intending to be the nursing equivalent of an MD. It is only insofar as it is a terminal, practical, or practice-based, rather, degree in the field of nursing, which is a clinical field. But that's different than saying it's a clinical doctorate akin to an MD, right? There is a purpose to the DNP. And the purpose, for a variety of reasons historically, was to bring more faculty into nursing schools. But also, the purpose is to translate the information that PhD researchers in nursing and other fields develop for healthcare to improve services, to translate that to the bedside, to actually improve the care for those patients. There's also a leadership component to the DNP because DNPs will be really well positioned to lead healthcare teams based on the the types of classes they take. You know, so there are master's level NPs. I have some family who are master's level NPs who are really good clinicians. And I've asked at one point, you know, do you ever consider going back for your DNP? And they'll say, well, no, because there's no additional clinical coursework. Now, there are additional clinical hours, but that's not the same as uh, a formalized clinical course, right? So they'll say something like, you know, maybe if there was additional clinical courses, I, I, would, I would do that. But I'm, not, I'm looking at the curriculum and I'm seeing a lot of healthcare leadership, healthcare policy and services, uh, you know, some of the bureau- what are perceived as bureaucratic classes, along with a bunch of research classes, epidemiology, you know, 
intermediate biostatistics, things like that, depending on the program you're in. But these are all critical components of being able to lead healthcare teams. So, you know, the MD is not trained to lead healthcare teams. They are trained to lead a clinical case, but leading the team is different. Now, for those listening who are physicians, for example, I'm, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you have that you do not have the capacity to do these things or that you can't be trained to do these things. But you'll agree with me, I would imagine, that strictly based on your MD program itself prepared you to do precisely that. Um, and that, that's, what I'm, that's the point that I'm making. The DNP degree does prepare doctorally prepared nurses to do that. So it's healthcare leadership, it's modifying policy to improve services, it's translating research to the bedside, and honing in your specialization clinically with additional hours to be able to do those things in your niche. Now, that's not a completely holistic picture, but that's a, that's a pretty good bare-bones start to understanding something like why the DNP, right? Now, here's my point. I realize I'm being loquacious today and overly verbose and talking for too long. Um, so I'm going to cut this off in, <laughs> in a few moments. Um, but, but my point is, I described this disparity between clinicians and researchers or academics. And I described this disparity between research and practice. And I, I don't have a lot of data in terms of how many DNPs are actually doing translational work per se. And I think there is some of that, but I think most people who go for their DNP, well, no, let me back up. I think there's some non-insignificant proportion of DNP holders who did it to have a terminal doctoral degree that was perceived to be clinical enough in nature because they were not interested in the PhD, but they did want a terminal degree. And I respect that to a degree, but I, I wonder how many DNPs out there are doing this, uh, this floating between clinician and researcher. And I think the way to do that without making the DN... Because here's why this is important, right? Most DNPs became DNPs because they were not interested in being researchers. They had an option to become a researcher. It was the PhD. They didn't do that because they didn't want to do that. They wanted to focus on practice. And that's completely respectable and understandable. But there is an inevitable research component to the DNP. The question is what kind of research and how? How is it employed? Well, are they going to go work in a lab and do basic bench laboratory work? Probably not. Um, that's not what the training is, is for. But, and the PhD in nursing can do that stuff. They can do genomics and they can do all sorts of lab-based things. They can also do policy and sort of, there's a lot of overlap in what's, what the capabilities are. However, DNPs are not typically interested in, in the, in the traditional landscape of what has historically been done by nurse researchers and other clinical researchers in nursing practice. So when they think of research, they think of the typical laboratory bench work. I think more DNPs would be very interested in the implementation science model if they knew that that was an, op an option for them. And it is. So I, I will end with one example. My husband works on a floor, as I mentioned, doing... GI nursing, some renal, some neuro, but it's kind of a, a catch-all um, med surge floor. He came home recently and he said, you know, I'm really frustrated because there's this pill crusher that we were working with on the floor. It takes three times longer than it should to be able to do this. It was modified apparently by a nurse, for a nurse, as it says on the uh, actual packaging somewhere, according to him. Um, from what I remember, it was a, a nurse who developed it. I don't know anything about this product, who developed it. I'm not disparaging who they are or what they did or any of the work that went into it, mostly because I don't know anything about it. 
um, other than what he told me. So what he told me was, it frustrates everyone, all his colleagues and himself on the floor, they can't stand using it, they used to have a model that wasn't perfect, but it did things quicker, and he said something interesting. He said, this must have been developed by some academic who hasn't been on the floor with patients in, you know, 20 years. And the healthcare landscape looks very different now than it did. And I have a feeling that that would resonate with a lot of nurses on the floor who are the ones on the ground dealing with actual patients every day. When they're, uh, you know, one to four, one to five, if they're lucky, or one to eight, you know, eight patients to one nurse, sometimes that's uh, inconceivable in some ways, but but not really because people do that. They have that experience, right? Um, you can imagine where those nurses don't have the time to mix this bag themselves and you know, like just the steps that go into that from a feasibility standpoint, from an implementation science standpoint, it could be improved, now, maybe they did the best they could at the time in developing this. Maybe they did the best that was possible, but I doubt it because there's always small ways to improve your strategies and your delivery system. But one of my questions was, it, yes, it was developed by someone who was a nurse, hypothetically for nurses, but the, did they do uh, an implementation research study where they took into account the feasibility and collected some qualitative data from the nursing staff on what could be improved? Did they pilot it and then improve it in an implementation um, efficacy hybrid, let's say, later? And then deliver it in terms of you know, some endpoint product later? And it's possible that they did, but my suspicion is that that's not what happened. My suspicion is that they had an idea, they built a prototype, they alpha and beta tested it in some more traditional, more typical kind of way, and then instantiated it after having enough funding to be able to, um, to send out the model into whatever service delivery system, whatever hospital system uh, they, they piloted it in, in their own way. And again, this is not to disparage them, I don't know them. <laughs> This is just to say there are ways to do this now with the implementation science and research uh, arm integrated, which will strengthen the field. Now, I, I'm so passionate about this, partly because I have aspirations for my own scholarly project to be a very implementation science-heavy project, um, but I'm very passionate about it because of the fact that nursing is an implementation field. It just And that's to say nothing of nursing practice at the advanced practice level. This is just speaking about general bedside nursing. I think people tend to... I, I don't want to get too far down a separate rabbit hole here, and I, I could certainly talk for another 45 minutes about this, so I won't do that. But to end it on this, this point here, people undervalue how much expertise goes into implementation. By, by, by far, physicians who look at nurses, and most of them look at nurses with respect and utmost respect, most physicians are exceptionally aware of how important their nursing staff is. Same thing with nurse practitioners, which would seem to go without saying because most NPs were nurses first or you know they became nurses and they still are nurses. And they respect their RN colleagues, um, having also you know, gotten their RN training as well. But, you know, there is there are still some that are inappropriate and elitist in a sense because people who become providers tend to assume that they're the ones who are doing the ordering. So they're doing the important diagnostic work, the treatment planning, whatever. But the issue is that if you didn't have nurses to implement those, you would be lost and I think most nurses would agree with that. And it's not just because you couldn't learn how to do both the ordering of the treatment and the implementation of the treatment, but it's that it's because you undervalue, not you personally, whoever you are, but the royal you 
providers undervalue or underappreciate or misunderstand how much expertise goes into implementing nursing and medical interventions. So if nursing is implementation, and this is an overly simplistic, exaggerated way to frame this, I realize, but humor me, if nursing is implementation and nursing research doesn't take into account implementation science methodology, no wonder there's a gap here. No wonder people have this frustration that seems to exist as they think about the gap that exists between research and practice, between academia and clinicians who are on the ground. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clinical Appraisal. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please rate it five stars on iTunes and share this channel with any friends in healthcare. If you'd like to ask me a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com and visit my website at about.me slash Ian Lane. Finally, I do this show because it helps me to learn and not because I like to pretend to be the expert on these topics. My objective is simply to grow as a clinician researcher and to promote this content for other like-minded people. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again next time.